Good morning. We are talking about one topic today when it comes to the life of Jesus, and there is there's a pretty good chance that we fall on one side or another of this topic in particular, and that is the topic of authority. Where are we landing on authority this morning? If it's a if it's a good place, I want you to say amen. If it's a bad place, I want you to say ouch, authority. Ouch. Okay, yeah, yeah. Same exact response as first service. All right, no surprise there. Chances are the way that we respond to authority in our lives all comes from how authority has been handled in situations that we have found ourselves in. This week, well, actually about two weeks ago, the Dennis family is experiencing authority in an all-new light. You see, we live in North Desert Oasis. Um, We live around an elementary school called Desert Oasis Elementary School, and they decided recently, I don't think they told anybody about it, um, they decided it would be really cool if our school had a school zone. And as soon as they decided it would be really cool if our school had a school zone, they went and they bought two of the smallest 15 miles per hour, uh, 24-7, don't drive over 15 miles per hour, if you can visually see this sign, and they just surprise everybody one morning, all right? And not only did they surprise everybody, they threw a welcoming party, and they called, I guess, the most neighborhood-friendly motorcycle cop that they could find to make sure that everybody felt so welcomed into the school's new school zone. In that moment, In our family, um, we experience authority um, by receiving a really pricey little welcome to the school zone uh, invitation. Um, It's called a ticket. I don't know if you've ever received one, but we got one. And so, hey, good or bad, I would say, is it good that we have a school zone? Absolutely. Um, Does that school zone need to have a time limit? 1,000%. Does it stink that we have to now pay the fine for um, a little bit, oh, just a little bit over 15 miles per hour? And by by a little, I mean like 20 miles per hour over. Uh, Yeah, yeah. In this situation, authority was good, and the repercussions of authority that we experienced was bad. Um, Now, a pastor friend of mine that is a church planner in North Peoria Two days later, got that same ticket, and man, it just feels good to not be alone. (laughs) So I'm glad that happened for him. We could experience this together, this life under authority. I think for many of us, uh, if you are a parent in the room, you have authority. Can I get some amens for that? Okay. And some kids in here like, ouch, okay, this is crazy. Um, God has given you authority to lead to love your family, to raise them up for the sake of the gospel under the principles that God has laid out for us. He has given us the authority in their lives, and the way that we parent in my house is that I will be your parent for as long as I need to be so that one day I can be your friend. That is part of the authority that God has given me. I'm not going to raise my kids and be their friends because that means later down the road, I'm going to have to be their parent and discipline is going to have to come in then. So up front, I'm going to steward the authority that God has given me to the best of my ability, the power of the Spirit to raise my family. Now, anybody have a job in here? Anybody retired and they don't have a job no more? All right, well, praise God for that too. 
Chances are, if you've ever had a job, unless you were the founder, CEO, whatever, you started that company, that you were under authority. And even then, you probably had a board that you were under the authority of. And chances are that the way that you view authority today probably depends on how your boss, manager, team leader handled their authority. Over and over and over again, there is authority that we experience in our lives. Again, for good or for bad. This morning and for the next four weeks after today, we will have five different sessions where we will look at the authority of Jesus. And the biggest difference in Jesus's authority and ours is the way that he uses his authority for good and only for good. And the source of his authority comes from the fact that he is God. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be only six verses this morning, verses 35 through 41. And our main idea is this. If you just take it for the rest of the sermon today, take this home with you. Jesus' authority today in particular over nature proves that he is God and that he can be trusted. Jesus' authority over nature proves that he is God and that he can be trusted. Let's dive into Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But... He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Six points this morning. The first that we're going to spend a little bit of time on, and then we're going to fly through some of the rest. That is that God is at work in the worry. We see this in verses 35 through 37. God is at work in the worry. Let's start breaking it down. Verse 35, on that day when evening had come, Jesus had been teaching for the entirety of this day. Literally everything that we've covered in the last four to five weeks within our sermons is what Jesus had been teaching on. First to the crowds, to the people that, uh, that he wanted to understand it, but they weren't really there for his message. They were there for his miracles. They were there for what they could take from Jesus, not for their ability to be able to follow Jesus. And then we see Jesus breaking it down to his disciples. At this time, Jesus needed to get some rest. The disciples needed to get some rest. And so what does he say? He says, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. So as we are reading through scripture, we have to ask some questions just to clarify what's going on along the way. And the question that I have to ask first is, okay, well, they're leaving from Capernaum, but where are they going? And we know that a big storm is about to take place. And so how does this really all come about? And so basically the route that Jesus is taking is right here in Capernaum. And they're going to go 
out into the Sea of Galilee, and they are eventually going to get to this place called Kersi or Gergesa. Now, you have to ask the question, how did they get there? They took a boat. And what kind of boat was it? It's called a flotilla, okay? And how do I know it was called a flotilla? Because uh, that's what Google told me that it was pronounced like, okay? Uh, I was thinking maybe this was like a, a, a Mexican restaurant dessert, and it was like a flotilla. Um, it is not of the same family as Sopapillas. It is a flotilla, and this is a Galilean-style boat. And so when we get to the part of Jesus taking a nap in this boat, there are two different places he can take a nap. Depending on what uh, scholar you study, depending on what commentary you read, um, it may say that he was asleep under the front. Most think he was asleep under the back. But as we read this today, Jesus falling asleep within the boat is a crucial part of the story. And so as we are figuring this out, now we know the route that Jesus and the disciples took. We know the kind of flotilla that they were paddling out in. And so we can kind of place ourselves a little bit better in this story. The thing that is absolutely crazy to me, and just now thinking about it, maybe this is why Jesus caused the storm. It's actually not why he caused the storm. But verse 36, it says, and other boats were with him. As I was reading this to my girls last night before they went to sleep, um, I was reading this part, and I said, man, all these people that have been following Jesus this entire time, they continued to want something from Jesus. And so they were not happy with, hey, we're going to let this guy get away. Anytime the leader needs to take a break from people, uh, it's a good idea just to go get out on a boat. But what did they do? They're like, oh, Jesus got a boat. He's got a flotilla. I got a flotilla. Let's get on our flotillas and let's go follow Jesus. And so these people absolutely could not get in their mind that Jesus was in an exhausted state, right? These people had received his teaching all day, and they were still not satisfied. Now, there is a chance that they probably could have wanted a little bit more of his teaching, but what is far more likely is they wanted to continue to take the temporary things, the miracles of Jesus, and they wanted to experience more of that. What they undoubtedly needed more of was his message. Then verse 37, a great windstorm arose and waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now these were hurricane type winds, right? Water is getting into the boats. And one thing I do know about boats, flotilla or not flotilla, they do not do very well when water gets inside of them. Now, going back to that picture of the boat, I'm really not sure where Jesus is sleeping in this boat. If water is getting in this boat, he had to have like a really nice like, you know, Tempur-Pedic pillow or something that he was rested on, nice and firm, just like to keep his head up out of the water. Maybe Jesus is just so stone cold out that he is not even paying attention to the water that is potentially up and around his face. What we see here in this boat, in the midst of this storm, is that there are very experienced, very veteran fishermen, people that were accustomed to the sea that are absolutely losing their minds. And we can trace this to a story that shows that Jesus is the new type of this person when we go all the way back to the book of Jonah. And in Jonah 1, we see that experienced sailors are on the sea, and there is a great storm, and it is causing them to absolutely panic. In the story of Jonah, we see that God calls Jonah to preach a message of repentance to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? Does he say, all right, God, 
I'm all in for what you want me to do in my life. My life is your life, so whatever it is, I'm your prophet. I'm going to go. I'm going to be super happy about it. I'm going to have a smile on my face the whole time. Is that what Jonah did? No, here's what Jonah did. Jonah said, all right, I'm going to find a boat that's pointed in the opposite direction of Nineveh. I'm going to get on that. Maybe it's a flotilla. Probably not. And I'm going to go the exact opposite direction as fast as I can. What happens? A great storm arises. All right, God put a great storm out on that sea so that those fishermen were in a panic, much like the fishermen that we see today. What does Jonah do? He says, hey, boys, this is actually all my fault. Um, this storm that we are finding ourselves in, it's actually because I'm running from a call of God on my life to go to Nineveh. What did they do? Same thing you would do. They threw him overboard, all right? And then a great fish came and swallowed him up, and he hung out in that dude for three days and eventually got coughed up on the shore, eventually ended up in Nineveh. Fast forward to Jesus. What is this a depiction of? What is this a parallel of? This is showing us that Jesus is the new Jonah. But instead of disobedience, he is only obedient. He is willingly following the will of God the Father perfectly as God the Son and the fishermen in his boat are absolutely flipping out just like they were in Jonah's boat. Now storms, they were not uncommon for the Sea of Galilee. The, way, the place and the, the way that it's situated is it's 700 feet below sea level. So a lot of these weather patterns would collect in that area. A lot of these men that Jesus called to follow him were fishermen. So that means they would have spent a lot of time out on that exact sea. They would have spent time fishing. They would have been used to the weather. But this is something that was absolutely unlike anything that they had ever seen. Here is something that we cannot miss in this parallel and within these two stories. And that is the source of the storms in our lives are just like the source of the storms in the lives of Jonah and in the lives of Jesus. Storms in our life can come from one or two places. One is a place of disobedience, like Jonah. The other is a place of obedience, like Jesus. But watch this, because this is hugely important to the story this morning. Jesus, out of obedience, led them into the storm. That means that this was not an accident. This is not something that caught God off guard. And Jesus does the exact same thing in our lives. We should not be surprised when storms come. We should not be shocked when our plans completely fall apart because a life in Jesus, we are almost always promised that that will be the case unless our lives are perfectly aligned to God. God will find a way to course correct over and over again. But when plans fail in our lives, when storms arise, there is one big thing that God is trying to accomplish. And that one big thing is that he wants to grow our faith. And that's exactly what we see in the lives of the disciples today. But there are three things that we need to realize within that. The first is who God is. The second is who we are in relation to who God is. And the third is who we need, and that is our Savior, our lifeboat our rescuer, our King, Jesus. What I have seen and what I have experienced and what I see in Scripture is that God does his best work 
all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, into our lives today in moments of desperation. It's always when it is darkest that the light shines the brightest. And I think for a lot of us today, we would not be saved. We would not be rescued by Jesus if we hadn't been put into a situation where we came to the end of ourselves. If we were not put into a situation where we saw our need for a Savior, if we were not put into a situation where it caused us to hit absolute rock bottom, and put into a situation where we realized that we cannot save ourselves and pull ourselves out of it. I remember the first situation that was a storm in my life, the first time that I experienced the physical presence and the spiritual mightiness of my Savior, Jesus. And it was in the middle of a bad second marriage. And me and my mom were in the middle of the storm within. And it was in the middle of a fight. And I remember hearing this fight, being witness to this fight. I remember running to my room and locking myself in my closet. And it was me and it was my children's Bible. And I remember, I remember crying out to God. And I remember saying, God, if you are real, if you really love me, then I need you to, in this moment, make yourself known. I need you to be the father that I have read about you being. I need to experience you right now. I need rescue from this situation. I need to know that you are here for me. I need to know that you love me. And I need to know that you can rescue me. And I promise you, in that moment, I felt the spiritual presence of God, whom I was crying out to, but I felt the physical presence of God wrap me up in a bear hug that I cannot explain to this day, like he was in that closet with me. In the middle of the first of many storms in my life, God showed up. He was in the boat the whole time. And in the midst of that situation that was terrible, it stunk the entire way. I, I wish I hadn't have gone through it, but you know what? Having gone through it, it didn't mean that God didn't love me. But what it meant for me is that God loved me enough that he would allow me to go through the situation so that he could call me to him. That as an eight-year-old boy, I needed to be in this situation so that I could see that I have a father that loves me in heaven. I have a God that loves me who's not going to go anywhere. I have a God who cares enough for me to physically wrap me up and say, Alex, it's going to be okay. I'm right here. I've been right here the whole time, and I will continue to be right here. I think in our own lives, we can be quick to try to bail out of the storm at the first chance that we get. And I would say if that is you, we have to be very careful of that situation because God has allowed this storm in our lives to yield something in our lives that he has put us in that storm for. There's something he is trying to grow inside of us spiritually, something he is preparing us for down the road that that storm is going to get us ready for. And almost every single time it is strengthened faith, strengthened faith, strengthened faith. I am here for you. I am not going anywhere. I am right beside you in this boat. I am your savior and I love you. And so don't look for the bailout. I would say in the lives of other people, don't look to bail them out. 
What if they actually need to hit rock bottom so that they can experience their need for a Savior, so they can experience their need to be saved and forgiven of their sin? They can realize the situation in life that they've gotten to is a place that only sin could get them to, and only forgiveness of sin and a Savior to save them from that sin, and the consequence of that sin is what is going to get them out of that situation. And so for us, we need to be slow to try to bail out of our storms. We need to be slow to try to bail other people out of their storms. And in every situation, we need to put our faith in God the Father to grow our faith even stronger. Mark 4, verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In the first part of verse 38, we come to our second point this morning, and that is that Jesus has human needs while also meeting our biggest need. You say that again. Jesus has human needs while also meeting our biggest need. Look, Jesus is asleep. These guys are in the biggest storm that they had ever experienced, and what is Jesus doing? I think it's like one of the dwarves in Snow White did that. I've never understood. I've never heard anyone snore like that. Maybe it's a Snow White thing. He's catching some Z's, right? He had had a full day. He was completely exhausted, just like you would be, just like I would be. He is comfy where he is on this boat. He is in the middle of some kind of rim cycle. And what do the disciples do? They go and wake him up. Jesus has human need. Jesus is fully man. Jesus is also fully God, and the fully God part is on the way, but there is something different about Jesus, and he can relate to us in all of our needs. He can identify with us in all of our needs. There wasn't anything that Jesus uh, was tempted by that he ever gave himself to, but everything that we could be tempted of, he was tempted of as well. We see that in his being fully man. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was fully man, but unlike me, unlike you, he was sinless. He had to be perfect if he was going to be the sacrifice that would take our sin. And then right here in Hebrews four fifteen, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There it is. Everything we could experience, he experienced, but he did not give into it. He remained perfect inside the perfect will of God the Father all the way to the cross to be the perfect sacrifice for me and for you. We see that it's not just sleepiness that Jesus experiences in the gospel. He also experiences hunger. Matthew 4.12, he experiences anger. Mark 3.5, he cried. John 11.35, and he died. You can find that in every single one of the Gospels. But right now, Jesus is sympathizing with us. He is relating to us within his sleep. And while he is relating to us, he absolutely meets our biggest need as well. Point three, we panic when we lose focus on Jesus. We panic when we lose focus on Jesus. This is the second half of that verse 38. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
If the disciples have a response to this situation, that's probably not like you or I would expect them to have. They've seen Jesus do some pretty cool things. But they're asking a question. Where's that question? Do you not love us? Do you not have concern for us? That is the deeper question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The deeper root of this is they think Jesus is asleep in the stern. Does he not even care for us? Does he have no concern? Does he not have any love? And now think of any storm that you have experienced in your life. And don't we say those exact things? Jesus, you were just here. But where are you now? Jesus, do you not care if I perish? Do you not love me? Do you not have concern for me? Like, these guys are in over their head. As experienced as they were, never having experienced anything like this, the first time you experience something bigger than you've ever experienced it before, you always feel like it is the end of your life. Look at middle schoolers. (laughs) All the drama that they go through is the first of the drama that they've been through, and so it is always so critical. It is always an emergency situation. These guys are frustrated. And what's with Jesus? Does he even care for us? And so what do they do? They lash out. And instead of showing faith, they cave to doubt and full-blown panic sets in. Even after all they've seen him do, all the miracles, all the teaching, the, the exercising of demons, the multiplying of food, the healing of the blind, the healing of the lame, their focus is taken off of Jesus and instead it is put on the storm. And don't we do the same thing? When a storm comes, although Jesus has proven himself to us over and over and over again, we choose not to focus on the Savior that is next to us in the boat, but instead focus on the storm that is in front of us outside the boat. It's like we, too, instantly forget everything that Jesus has done in our lives. We claim that he is distant when really we are being deceived. We are being ignorant of a God that is right there with us the entire time. And so if that is you today, and you are having trouble finding Jesus, I need you to know that he has not made himself distant, that he is waiting for you to turn to him. And guess what? He is present, but he is also trusting. It's something that we have to realize in the midst of this storm is that Jesus was completely trusting in the will of of the Father. Jesus knew that he was going to be absolutely untouchable until he got to the cross. And what we need to know in our lives is that as long as we are following the will of God the Father, that we are invincible until he is finished with us. And so there is no need to worry. There is no need to fear. There is no need to fall into panic and anxiety because Jesus has us every step of the way. How was it that Jesus was able to sleep so well? He knew his father had his best interest at heart. For God's glory and for his good. Mark 4, 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. What we see here is the focus of the story. I think so often as the American church, we can say that the Bible is about me, and the Bible is not about us. We don't invite Jesus into our story. We are invited into his story. And so because the Bible is about Jesus and the place that we find ourselves in this story that Jesus has taking place is that his authority is the focus here. 
And he has authority over nature. Why does he have authority over nature? Because he is God. I think so often we can worship our storms more than we actually worship Jesus. And so let's put the focus here on where it needs to be, and that is Jesus and his authority, and that he is God. Does that mean that he won't calm your storm? Does that mean that he can't save you from your storm? Absolutely not. But the focus of our lives is on Jesus, not in the problems, the situations, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So Jesus has authority over nature. Because he is God. Verse 39, we see that fully God just comes out to play. And it comes out to play in the biggest way that the disciples had seen up to this point. There are three aspects of God that only God uh, obtains. And the first is omniscience. God is omniscient and only God is omniscient. That means that he knows all things, actual or potential, all at once. God is omnipresent. He exists everywhere at all times, all at once. And the only God is omnipotent. That means all-powerful. In this moment, Jesus puts his omnipotence to work right then and there. And what does he say? Peace. Be still. Right? He doesn't have to rattle out some Avada Kedavra, anything like that. Right? No, that's not taking place. Jesus just speaking to the storm, and the storm is being still. He doesn't have to string anything together. He simply speaks And what happens? It stops. The full deity of Jesus is put on display in this moment. At a statement, hurricane winds are still. Only God can do something like that. So what does this signal to the disciples? Surely this must be God. This is the exact same thing we will see Jesus prove over and over and over again in the next four weeks that we have together. Mark 4.40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Point five this morning is that well-placed panic grows faith. Well-placed panic grows faith. Verse 40, we see that Jesus uses this moment to teach them something important. That is that he does not desert, and that is that he is worthy of our faith. Jesus realizes something that we need to realize, too, as we read this, and that is that it still hasn't yet clicked for the disciples. They will keep learning this lesson over and over and over and over. It will keep not clicking for them. They will struggle in their faith in Jesus five more times in the gospel of Mark alone. They will doubt Jesus, panic will set in, and they'll get called on it time and time again. For the disciples, it isn't until Jesus has resurrected that they fully understand who he is and what he had done for them and what he does for us on the cross. And so for us, we have to figure out where we stand when it comes to Jesus. We have to figure out where we stand when it comes to who he is and what he has done. And so where are we? We are people that have read of his life. Remember, the disciples, they're in the middle of the story. Us as believers today, we are at the end of that story having already happened. Jesus has already lived the perfect life. He's already died for our sin. He already rose three days later. Forty days after that, he ascended into heaven, and now he is at the right hand of the Father. And we read about this. We read about his life, his teaching, his miracles. We possibly even experience some of them of our own. We know that he's all-knowing. 
We know that he's all-present. We know that he is all-powerful. We know the work in which he did on the cross on our behalf so that we could be forgiven of sin, so that he could be obedient and glorify the Father. And we know where he is now. And so the question then becomes, why are we so faithless? Why does the storm that is in front of us cause us to panic so bad? Why does the storm, after we get through this storm, that is next on the horizon cause us to freak out so much? Why is it that we can't see that he hasn't gone anywhere? Why is it that we struggle so much to realize that he is just setting up divine appointments time after time after time again that will grow our faith? That is the reason for the storms, to grow our faith. Why are we so faithless? What is it going to be? Strengthened faith or detrimental doubt? We find the answer to that question within our last scripture this morning, Mark 4, 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Our sixth final point this morning is who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? The disciples asked this question. We all have to answer it. Who then is this? It's crazy to me that in a moment, these guys go from seeing the biggest storm of their lives and being so terrified, so filled with fear, and then seeing Jesus calm it. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen like a lake early in the morning before all the boats get on, on it, before it gets choppy, just clear as glass. And that's, that's the picture I have in mind here. Jesus calmed the sea. And the fear and the terror within those disciples goes from that storm onto Jesus. Whoa. Who then is this? I think there is a realization within the disciples at this point. And that is that this storm wanted to take our lives. But here is Jesus who just saved us. And he wants to save our lives. Who is it then is this? Who is Jesus in your life? For me, for the storms that I've gone through time after time after time again, he is Savior. He is God. He has authority. He's not just the storm stopper. He is the storm user. And he uses those storms that he's put in place in my life and the lives of so many believers that I know to yield something that he is desiring, and that is our, our faith to be strengthened main idea this morning. Jesus' authority over nature proves he is God and can be trusted. So how do we put this into action? How is it that we are to be the church and display the kingdom this morning? First thing, see Jesus for who he really is. The Christ, Son of God, Savior, storm stopper, storm user. And then, when divinely appointed storms come, Hold strong to your faith in Jesus. Continue to worship him, not the storm that is causing you to focus on it. Don't waver at the severity of the situation you find yourself in, but instead go to Jesus. Ask him to strengthen your faith, to keep panic at bay, to use your storm 
until it yields what he desires in your life and to help you embrace that storm until that time comes. Let's go to him in prayer now. Let's ask him to do just that.